Our scripture reading today is from John chapter 5, verses 30 through 47. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But you do not believe, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Good morning once again. My name is Dave Farley. I'm one of the pastors here at GCF. This morning, we continue our series in the Gospel of John. I would love uh, to pray again uh, and ask for God's help as we seek to understand this portion of His Word. Let's pray once again. Father, thank You. Thank You for giving us this portion of Your holy, inspired, life-giving, and errant Word. Lord, I pray that all the things I say this morning would lead to your glory and honor and the sanctification of the saints and the conversion of the lost. Father, I pray that you would guard my lips very carefully. We pray that Jesus Christ would be honored and magnified through the preaching of the word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When Elijah Baptist was convicted of murder... He was convicted by the testimony of just one eyewitness, and the eyewitness's name was Leo Carter. Now, why was Leo Carter such a great witness? A couple reasons. First of all, he had fantastic character. Second of all, he was playing basketball across the street from the grocery store where Elijah Baptist murdered Sam Blue, and he saw with his own eyes as Elijah Baptist pulled the trigger and shot Sam Blue in the face. Third, 
A little while later, Elijah Baptist came after Leo Carter, knowing he was a witness. He already killed the first witness. He came after Leo Carter. He found him, and he shot him in the face, and he left him for dead. Leo Carter amazingly survived being shot in the face. So several months later, when Elijah Baptist was on trial for the murder of at least two people, it was very dramatic when the star witness, Leo Carter, slowly raised his finger and pointed at the man and said, that's the man right over there, Elijah Baptist, who I saw murder Sam Blue, and he also shot me in the face. Now, based on the evidence and the credibility of this one star witness, Elijah Baptist was condemned as a murderer, and he went to prison. Often trials like this are determined based on the testimony of one star witness, and this witness was a pretty amazing witness. Well, several thousand years before these events transpired, Jesus Christ was on trial. What was his crime? He claimed that he was God, equal with God the Father. This made the Jews very upset, so they condemned him as a heretic and accused him of blasphemy. And so as he's on trial, he brings forward four star witnesses to prove that he is, in fact, Jesus, the Son of God, equal with God the Father. Now, maybe you're here this morning, and you're like the Jews. You wonder, is Jesus really God? Is he really equal with the Father? And if so, what is the evidence to prove that that's true? And if that is true, what are the implications for me? If Jesus Christ is who he says he is, nothing else matters in your life than getting reconciled to him. Nothing doesn't matter how much money you make, how big your house is, how many cars you have, how many cabins and condos you own, how fit you are. Nothing else matters than what you do with Jesus Christ. And if he is truly God, then your eternity is at stake. Well, is he really God? What is the evidence? Let's look at these four star witnesses in detail and see what they tell us about Jesus. The first witness is the witness of the Baptist. Again, Jesus Christ is on trial before the Jews. Look with me at verses 31 to 35, and we see Jesus bringing forth his first star witness, and that is the witness of the Baptist, also known as John the Baptist. Verse 31, Jesus said, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. This seems like a strange statement for Jesus to make. Is he saying that he's lying? No. He recognizes that he's in a Jewish court of law, and in a Jewish court of law, evidence had to be corroborated by at least two or three witnesses. And he's simply saying that my testimony alone is not enough, but that's okay because I have other witnesses to verify that I am who I claim to be. Let's keep reading. Verse 32. He says, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now, the witness he's referring to here is the witness of the Father, and we'll talk more about that witness in a moment. Verse 33, you sent to John, that is, John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. 
Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He's basically saying, I don't need the testimony of a man, but John the Baptist witnessed to me for the sake of your salvation. Then verse 35, he, that is John the Baptist, was a burning and shining lamp. What a great description. Wouldn't you love to be described as a burning and shining lamp for King Jesus? John was a burning and shining lamp. And he says, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. After 400 years of prophetic silence, John the Baptist explodes onto the scene. He's the cousin of Jesus. And he begins to preach these fiery sermons in the desert of Judea. And people literally walked for days through the hot, dry, dusty desert just to hear this guy preach. He was such a phenomenal preacher. He was the first celebrity pastor. Everyone knew who he was. He was a very, very well-known religious leader and speaker. But he wasn't just some guy rambling on in the desert. Christ describes him as a burning and a shining lamp. He burned with passion for the glory of God, and he burned with passion for souls to be one to Christ. And as he preached, he shined forth the light of the gospel. He was a profound and powerful witness to Jesus, and the Jews should have recognized this, and they should have believed. But they refused to believe. John was a star witness. And again, he's described in colorful language as a burning and a shining lamp. What the world needs right now is more people like John to be a burning and shining lamp to Jesus. My favorite period of history is the Reformation. During the English Reformation of the 16th century, God raised up many men and women who were burning and shining lamps for King Jesus. My favorites uh, were Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. In fact, in seminary, I named my dog Ridley after Nicholas Ridley. These men were bold and courageous preachers who preached that one is justified or declared righteous by faith alone plus nothing. And they also taught that one should never, ever, ever bow down and worship the bread and the wine in communion. And because they taught these things, they were persecuted by the Roman Catholic Church in England. There was great darkness in 16th century England, and God raised these men up and many others to be a burning and a shining lamp. Now, because these men preached so fearlessly and so, so offensively, many people were deeply offended. So these men were rounded up, put on trial, accused and condemned. They were chained up, and they were marched several blocks down the street to the center of Oxford, England. And as they marched down the street, thousands of people showed up to watch as these burning and shining lamps marched to their death. And when they finally arrived to the center of Oxford, England, there was a massive pile of dry wood waiting for them. And they were both tied to this wood in the middle of the square with thousands watching, including their families. And a soldier took a match, lit it, and threw it on the pile. 
And the pile began to burn. And these men knew that they were about to meet their maker after being burned alive. And as they stood there, as the flames got hotter and hotter and hotter, Latimer turned to his friend Ridley and said in a loud voice, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And both these men died very quickly. And as a result of their boldness and courage, many of the onlookers professed faith in Christ. These men were willing to literally be a burning and shining lamp for King Jesus. Now, I hope that no one here meets the same fate. But I hope and pray that all of us here eventually grow and grow and grow and become more and more of burning and shining lamps for the glory of King Jesus. God has given us the distinct privilege of witnessing or testifying to the transforming power of Jesus Christ. We are all called to be burning and shining lamps for Jesus. Yet so often, when God gives us opportunities, we keep our mouths closed because we're afraid of what others will think of us or we don't know what to say or we're just apathetic. We don't care about lost people. What should we do if that's the case? We should pray that God would give us his passion to see souls one to Christ. I'm glad GCF is growing, but I hope and pray that God brings more and more and more non-Christians into our midst so that we see genuine conversion. I would love to see the baptismal utilized on a regular basis. That'll only happen as God gives us grace and power to be bold and shining lights for Jesus. John the Baptist was a star witness, but there were others. So first is the witness of the Baptist, and second is the witness of the miracles. Look with me at verse 36. Jesus says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus says that his testimony is greater than John the Baptist's testimony. Well, how? Because John had a a pretty profound testimony. How was Christ's testimony better than John the Baptist's? Well, the Father gave Christ several miracles to perform. Signs proving that he is God. The Gospel of John is often called uh, the book of signs. It contains all these signs proving that Jesus Christ uh, is the Son of God. Let me explain or um, catalog some of these signs. There are seven in the Gospel of John proving that he is divine. Jesus transforms water into wine. John 2 proving that Jesus loves to feast and he has power over creation. In addition, Jesus heals an official son, John 4, 46 to 54, proving that he has the power to bring life. 
Jesus heals a lame man on the Sabbath, John 5, proving that he has power to heal our bodies and proving that he is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus feeds 5,000 with a few loaves and a few fishes, John 6, 1 to 15, proving that he is the bread of life that can satisfy our hungry souls. Jesus walks on water, John 6, 16 to 21, proving that he rules over nature. Jesus heals a man born blind, proving that he has power to bring sight. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, John 11, proving that he has authority or power over life and death. These miracles are all signs proving, witnessing to the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. He is, in fact, the divine Son of God equal with the Father. These miracles point to his deity. And this is why John wrote the Gospel of John. Consider the words of John 20, 30 to 31. John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These signs or miracles witness or testify that Jesus is the Son of God and life can be found in his name and his name alone. Objection, Dave. Didn't a lot of folks perform miracles in the Bible? Yes, they did. But the number of miracles and the types of miracles that Christ performed clearly point to the fact that he was the unique divine Son of God. Objection. Dave, do you really expect us to believe in miracles in the 21st century? It's the era of Tesla and brain surgeries and nuclear power and cell phones. Yes. Why should we believe in miracles? Because there is evidence to believe that God exists. If God exists, then miracles are clearly possible. What's that evidence, Dave? Here are a few simple lines of evidence. How about the origin of the universe, which I discussed in Sunday school this morning? Most scientists now believe that before the universe existed, there was nothing, no time, no space, and no matter. And we all know that nothing comes from nothing. Yet here we are, which means that something outside of time, space, and matter must have created the universe out of nothing. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the universe. The existence of the universe, the existence of stuff, trees, and grass, and lakes, and mountains, and streams proves that God exists. There is something and not nothing, which means that God must have created all things. How about the universe's fine-tuning? There are over 200 conditions that must be in place simultaneously right now for life to exist on planet Earth. If just one of those things is missing, you and I would cease to exist very quickly. Now, the odds of all these conditions existing by chance is one out of 10 to the 138th power. Okay, Dave, how big is that number? The amount of atoms in the known universe is 10 to the 85th power. I don't know who figures that out. <laughs> Someone does. 
The point is, the odds of life existing on planet Earth, the odds of all these conditions being here simultaneously are insurmountably small. One author says this, the odds against the universe existing are so heart-stoppingly astronomical that the notion that it all just happened defies common sense. It would be like tossing a coin and having it come up heads 10 quillion times in a row. Really? The fact that we're here, living and breathing, means the universe has been fine-tuned, which means there is a God. And if God exists, miracles are possible. And all the miracles in the Gospel of John witness or testify that Jesus is who he says he is, the divine Son of God. But there's more witnesses. This is all we really need, but there's more. God gives us more because God knows that we have weak faith. There's the witness of the Baptist, witness of the miracles, and third, there is the witness of the Father. Look with me at John 5, 37 to 38. Jesus says, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you've never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Jesus claims that his heavenly Father has witnessed to his divinity, but the Jews haven't heard it or seen it. What's he referring to? Probably two events. Probably his baptism. When Christ is baptized in water, the dove descends from heaven, and the Father says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Imagine being there and hearing that divine, supernatural, booming voice saying, this guy, Jesus, is my son. This probably also refers to the transfiguration when Jesus is up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and Moses and Elijah show up, and Christ speaks, or the Father speaks audible words about the Son before those people. But Jesus also says uh, in verse 38, and you do not have his, that is the Father's word abiding in you. That word for word is the word logos, which usually refers to the Bible. He's basically saying that the Father testified of me in the scriptures. You have those scriptures. And they speak of me, but you are not listening to the Father's voice in the Old Testament, which brings us to the fourth and final witness. There's the witness of the Baptist, witness of the miracles, witness of the Father, and fourth is the witness of the Scriptures. Now, I have served on jury duty twice, and I've had the privilege of watching two court cases unfold before my eyes. One author makes the point that usually what happens is when there's a big trial, the first witness comes forward and demonstrates that the accused has had an opportunity to commit the crime, which is a pretty powerful witness. The second witness shows that he had a motive for committing the crime. The third witness proves that the accused, accused had access to their murder weapon. Then the fourth and final witness was an eyewitness of the murder. 
And he actually saw the murder unfold before his eyes. The point is, is that attorneys often save the most powerful star witness or testimony for the very end, to put the nail on the coffin. I think Christ is adopting that tactic here. Christ is saving the best witness for the end. And the best witness is simply this, the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, which the Jews had. They testify that Jesus is the divine Son of God. Consider the words of John 5, 39 to 40. Jesus says, you search the scriptures, That's the word there for the Old Testament scriptures. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. That's an amazing claim. Christ is saying that the entire Old Testament, all the scriptures bear witness to him. They all point to him. He's the hero of every story in the Old Testament. And Jesus says to the Jews, you search diligently. That word search is a technical term, which means that they read the scriptures very carefully, yet they can't see Jesus. They're blind to him. Then verse 40 says, yet you refuse to come to me. So Christ is saying, the entire Old Testament is about me. You should see me there, but you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And skip down a little bit to verse 45 to 47. Jesus says to the Jews, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you did not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Moses was shorthand for the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And Jesus is saying, Moses wrote of me. Moses pointed to me. And if you don't believe his word, he's going to rise up on the day of judgment, and he's going to condemn you for ignoring what he said about me. This raises the question, Dave, is the entire Old Testament really about Jesus? Does it all really point to him? Yes. Let me provide a few brief examples. Key Old Testament themes witness to Jesus. For instance, the kingdom theme. Jesus Christ is the king who dies for his subjects. What a king. The covenant theme. Jesus Christ is the only one in the whole Old Testament who finally and truly keeps covenant with God. The presence theme, Jesus Christ lovingly brings us in to God's presence by suffering and dying on the cross. The rest and Sabbath theme, Jesus Christ brings us into God's Sabbath rest. The justice theme, Jesus Christ satisfied God's justice on the cross when he died for our sins. How about the righteousness and nakedness theme? Jesus Christ covers our nakedness with his robes of perfect, spotless righteousness. We could go on and on. In addition, key Old Testament characters witness to Jesus. Tim Keller says this, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and his obedience is imputed to us, 1 Corinthians 15. 
Jesus is the true and better Abel, who though innocently slain, has his blood has, that cries out for our acquittal, not our condemnation, Hebrews 12, 24. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void, not knowing whether he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant, Hebrews 3. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. In addition, key Old Testament images witness to Jesus. The entire sacrificial system points to Jesus. He is the true and final sacrifice that removes the sin of the world. The temple reminds us that Jesus Christ is the temple. He's the very place where God dwells with man, and he also happens to be the perfect sacrifice inside the temple. It all points to him. He's the bread on the altar, John 6. He's the light stand in the holy place, John 8. He's the Passover lamb, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. And we go on and on. In addition, key Old Testament prophecies witness to Jesus. One scholar says this, there are 191 predictions in the Old Testament about the coming of Christ, including his ancestry, the city in which he would be born, that he would be born of a virgin, precisely the time in history when he would die, and so on. And these prophecies are very, very specific. How specific? A thousand years before Christ came, Psalm 22, 16 to 18 says that his hands and feet would be pierced, his bones would be out of socket, that others would cast lots for his clothing. That's pretty specific. 500 years before Christ, Zechariah 12, 10 says that Jesus would be pierced with a lance. 700 years before Christ, Isaiah 53, 2 to 12, specifically describes 12 distinct aspects of Christ's suffering on the cross. The specificity of these prophecies is astounding. If this was the only evidence there was for Christianity's truthfulness, this would be enough. <laughs> Do any of you know the future? The answer is no. None of you do. Only a divine being knows the future. Only God knows the future. Therefore, God was able to predict the future in all this prophetic language of the Old Testament, proving the Bible is surely trustworthy and true. Peter Kreef, the prominent Boston College philosopher, wrote these amazing words. If you calculate the probability of any one person fulfilling surely by chance, all the Old Testament messianic prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. It would be as astronomical as winning the lottery every day for a century, which would be awesome. Even if Jesus deliberately tried to fulfill the prophecies, no mere man could have the power to arrange the time, place, events, and circumstances of his birth or events after his death. The Old Testament Scripture clearly and repeatedly witnesses to Jesus. And again, if all we had was fulfilled prophecy, that would be enough to convince most people that the Bible is trustworthy and true. Therefore, what it says about Jesus must be trustworthy and true. 
The Old Testament is an incredible and profound witness to the deity of Jesus, which raises a few important questions. If this is true, Dave, why did the Jews refuse to come to Jesus? If there's so much evidence, why did they refuse to repent of their sins and trust him and believe his claims? Because they did not want to come. It wasn't a lack of evidence. It was simple hearts. Listen to John 5, 39 to 40 again. Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet, you refuse to come to me that you may have eternal life. Christ is clearly saying the Old Testament scriptures clearly, unambiguously, point to my full divinity. Yet you refuse to believe because you don't want to believe. Lack of evidence is rarely the issue for our non-Christian friends. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. I'm so glad you're here. I hope you come back. But I don't think that you lack evidence the evidence for the deity of Christ, the truth claims of Christianity, are overwhelmingly strong. The issue is the heart. If Jesus Christ is truly who he says he is, that changes everything. And you and I must drop what we're doing instantly, repent of our sins, and trust him. Because he's coming again someday to judge the world in righteousness. If he is truly God, you and I must obey his every command joyfully and cheerfully. And by the way, his commands are not burdensome. He's a good and kind and gracious king, and he offers you and I eternal life. When we refuse to follow Jesus, it leads to all kinds of heartache and pain, and misery. Yet with Jesus, there is life, joy, and peace. Following him can be challenging at times. It can lead to suffering and pain and misery. But it also leads to deep, abiding joy and rest and peace. The issue is rarely a lack of evidence. But maybe you're here and you want more evidence. I understand. I'd love to talk to you afterwards about that and give you more evidence for the truth claims of Christianity. But here, that's not the issue. The issue is a stubborn heart that refuses to bow the knee to King Jesus. That's the issue. Next question. How do we find Jesus in the Old Testament? It's kind of scary that the Jews searched the Scriptures diligently, and they could not see Jesus. The answer is, we must humble ourselves and pray. When you read the Bible, you've got to pray, God, please help me understand what I'm reading. Maybe you don't want to read. Say this, God, please change my desires and give me a heart a desire, a passion to commune with you in the scriptures. And then pray, God, help me understand what I'm reading. Help me see Jesus on every page of the scriptures. 
Let me give you some advice on finding Christ in the Old Testament. You only need two questions to find Christ in the Old Testament. The first question is simply this. What about this text I'm reading right now reveals humanity's need for a Savior? That's the first question. Second question is simply this. What about this text reveals God's gracious disposition to provide a Savior? If you have those two questions... You can find Christ on every page of the Bible because the Bible has all kinds of examples everywhere of brokenness and fallenness and God intervening and providing grace, redemption, and mercy. Christ is the hero of every page of Scripture. This raises another question. Dave, what is the primary purpose of the Bible? The Bible is not primarily a history of God dealing with humanity, although there is some of that in the Bible. The Bible is not primarily an explanation of doctrine, although doctrine is important, that's in the Bible too. The Bible is not primarily a rule book, although there are rules in the Bible. What is the Bible's primary purpose? The Bible's primary purpose is to exalt magnify and witness to the glory of King Jesus. He is the hero of every story, and he's our only hope in life and in death. That all points to him. The Bible's primary message is not spelt with two letters, D-O, do. Just do a little more, try a little harder, and God will love you and forgive you. No, no. The Bible, over and over and over again, is about what God has done for us. The Bible's primary, primary message is spelled with four letters, D-O-N-E, done. Jesus Christ has done everything necessary in his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection to reconcile you to God and to forgive all your sins and to assure you a place in heaven. But you have to admit you need Jesus. You have to admit that your good deeds are not enough to earn relationship with him. You have to humble yourself and cast yourself on his mercy. Jesus was on trial for claiming to be God. As a result, he put forward at least four star witnesses, proving that he was who he said he was, the divine son of God, equal with the Father. And we have even more witnesses today than we had back then. We have the witnesses of billions, literally billions of changed lives. We have the witness of all the good Christianity has done in world history. There's a great book that came out a few years ago called Jesus Skeptic, and the book argues that Christianity has been the greatest source of good, period, in world history. No organization or movement has, has built more hospitals, freed more slaves, liberated more women, built more schools than Christianity. Is there bad in its history? Yes. But overall, no movement has done more to cause humans to flourish than Christianity. If you doubt me, read the book, Jesus Skeptic. It chronicles all this in great detail. We have the witness of modern science pointing us to the truthfulness of the Bible. That's the subject of Sunday school for the next five or six weeks. And we have the witness of the resurrection pointing us to the deity of Jesus. The evidence 
for Christianity's truthfulness is overwhelming. How will you and I respond to this vast ocean of evidence that Jesus Christ is who he says he is? How you respond to the evidence is not a minor or a secondary issue. This is the most important thing about your life. Nothing else matters more. If Jesus Christ is who he says he is, all of us, and I mean all of us, must worship him with every single fiber of our being 24-7. Let's pray together.